0: I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv.
1: And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London.
0: And we are Unholy, two Jews on the News from Keshet Podcasts. Hi, Jonathan.
1: How are you doing, Yonit?
0: Well, it's been a week since the ceasefire took hold. I've lived in Israel most of my life, and it still does not cease to amaze me how quickly things go back to normal. Maybe more precise to say uh, we've gone back to our normal abnormality.
1: It is a kind of amnesiac nation a bit. It often strikes me in Israel. Events can happen and literally within a few hours people kind of clear up and it's as if it didn't happen and it is strange. So you think something like that's happened this week?
0: Oh completely. We live between extremes. I mean you know it's either it's not like we see the glass half empty or the glass half full. It's either the glass is overflowing or someone stole your glass right. So last week we were with the rockets running to the shelter trying to figure out where the light switch is and how to explain the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to your three-year-old girl. And now it's like we're back to fighting about politics and will we have fifth elections? There's never, ever a moment of just middle ground, of just
1: quiet. And the strange thing is, actually, probably here it's in the air more because we're still talking about the fallout from it, the implications from it. Which, in fact, brings me to a rather special bit of the program. Normally, we hand out our Mensch of the Week award at the end of the podcast, but we are upending things this time because we are <laughs> giving our Mensch of the Week award right now, and in another twist, we're doing it, Yonit, in person.
0: We are. We're doing it live. There is one television moment... A uh, television moment uh, that the whole world was talking about uh, this week, Jonathan, and that is the interaction between uh, CNN's Biana goldriga and Pakistani foreign minister, which was coming up with these anti-Semitic slurs, and Biana just pushed back with this elegance, and it was so effective, and we're so lucky to talk to biana now
2: hi biana hi guys well this we course is so glad join us i didn't know i'd get a mensch of the week award <laughs> where's where's my mother <laughs> she'd be so proud
1: <laughs> you know you don't need now room on the shelf for an emmy or any other kind of television award you have got the unholy mensch of the week you can really your you you can rest here knowing the accolade the mount the summit has been reached
2: I, i'm set i've done it <laughs> For my 43rd um, birthday, who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> we
0: uh, should say, uh, Biana, that you're the C- senior global affairs analyst and anchor at CNN. Uh, you've been the anchor on ABC's Good Morning America and CBS's This Morning and a dear friend. And uh, we're so glad to have you. We want to listen to that part of the conversation. Is that OK?
3: Sure.
1: Israel is losing out. They're losing the media war despite their connections. They are losing the media war. The tide their, is turning. What are their
2: connections?
1: <laughs> Deep pockets. What does that mean? Well, they're very influential people. They, I mean, they control media.
2: I, I mean, I, I would call that an anti-Semitic remark.
1: Well, you see, the point is, uh, they have a lot of influence, uh, and uh, they get a lot of coverage. Mr.
2: Foreign Minister, thank you so much for your time. I would just ask you personally to please avoid using anti-Semitic tropes that you use at the beginning of our conversation. I I think I think they are very I have
1: never been anti-Semitic and I never will be.
2: Okay. We'll leave it there.
1: See, I've now watched that several times over. I'm sure you have too. It's it went kind of pretty wild on social media, uh, in various different forms. The thing I think when I watch it is when he says this moment when he says well you know they have connections and deep pockets there is a look I think that goes across your face which is can I believe that he has actually said these words like it's almost a sort of internal double take that I saw across your eyes
2: yeah well you're right and and, and you picked up on it exactly um it was just at the start at the interview I don't even think we were a minute in and I you know you know, knows me and 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 for your listeners I, I try not to be this provocative kind of, you know, attention seeking interviewer wanting to, to press um, guest buttons all the time. This was clearly, be, you know, 24 hours before the ceasefire. And we were talking about a very important subject. I had previously just interviewed the IDF spokesperson and then a, a Palestinian um, uh, who lived in Gaza and, and, you know, talked to her about what her life was like there on a daily basis. So going to him, this was, he'd come out of a UN meeting and, What had he been hearing about, you know, how close a ceasefire was? So I I think what shocked me and the reason why I sort of put the brakes on was that that was completely out of bounds from where I thought my question was directed. I thought it was straightforward. I expected him and he began the answer. If you listen, he said, I think the tide is turning. I think that we may be closer to a ceasefire. And I thought we were headed in one direction. And then all of a sudden it was just, where are we going with this? And I didn't want to assume or put words in his mouth, which was was the reason I asked him to, you know, to follow up on what the connections were that he was talking about. And, you know, when he said deep pockets, um, I I asked, what does that mean? And then obviously, you know, you heard his answer.
0: I was trying to remember when there was another incident of someone pushing back on or calling out anti-Semitism so clearly. And tragically, I couldn't remember too many examples of that
2: on air. Well, this to me was so blatant. And, you know, I thank you. So, I, I mean, you, you've just sort of showered me with praise, which I think is a lot of it is a, unnecessary and a bit too much. But, um, you know, as you can imagine, the other end, I've received a lot of you know, criticism and some nasty, you know, this is sort of the world we live in with social media. And I choose not to, to go into that. But I was surprised that this was even controversial that, that what he said that they own the media I mean it is one of the most you know well-known tropes associating Jews with power and their connections with the media and I I maybe I was naive I was really surprised to hear that people were even questioning his his answer I thought it was so straightforward and what I had assumed was that after I called him out on it, he would, you know, maybe walk it back or, or clarify what he meant, but he just went deeper into it and doubled down. And it was an unfortunate conversation. I mean, if this had been anyone else and in somebody not in his power and not the, you know, the number two or number three foreign figure, foreign head at Pakistan, their top diplomat, I probably would have ended the interview because it's just a waste of time. And why are you giving somebody like this airtime? But I thought that, you know, he, he went further into they have to justify or explain why, you know, this, this stereotype exists and why this anti-Semitic trope exists as opposed to somebody in his position trying to, you know, condemn it. Uh, it, it, was, it was unfortunate and it was, it was a long interview. I was hoping to move back to a different, you know, topic and the topic at hand. And um, it, it was also hard in the back of my mind to just let that go, too. <laughs>
1: And funnily enough, the thing in the back of your mind, I, I felt I could see that even through the interview, you're still sort of almost partly as TV interviewer, but also as a Jewish person who's just heard a horrible anti-Semitic thing being said. There's that feeling where you sort of go a little, your kind of neck goes hot, you can't believe someone's done this, and you're having to proceed with the interview. But it's interesting this point about the naivety, because he almost answers you in the interview as if you're the one being naive, as if, well, obviously, these Oof. people... Have deep pockets, you know, and connections. Don't we all know that? Never explains who these people are, but somehow I don't think he's talking about, you know, the Israeli government. He's talking about Jews, and perhaps in ruling circles in Pakistan, those are the sorts of things that you can take as red. So he kind of looks at you as if, yeah, what, what, what of it?
2: Right, and I didn't find it my place or appropriate to say, hey, you know, I, I happen to be Jewish. I, I would have assumed that any journalist regardless of their religion, would know what he meant and find that to be offensive and and to push back on that, especially someone in his position. Uh, And it does go back to a subject that you were speaking about in your um, podcast last week, just about this this moment that we're in where, as journalists, and we try to approach every subject as objectively as possible, when you delve into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or anything regarding Israel— um, the question of well I'm talking about a government and not a religion you know you're, you're always sort of drawn into that debate and I didn't find it necessary for me to have to identify myself as being Jewish because that was irrelevant I'm a journalist and um, you know if anything I, I thought he was attacking journalism um, and as well and so uh, but but of course coming out of it you see the response and a lot of it being well of course she's Jewish and of course this is why she's you know and she's biased and and I wouldn't approach it at all. I would like to think that regardless of what my religion was and if this was not an anti-Semitic trope, but if it were something racist against African-Americans or Asians or anybody else, that you would call it out similarly and not have to sort of, you know, separate yourself from your, your own heritage and your own background from calling a spade a spade. When
0: this started, uh, the the latest uh, skirmish, uh, the Operation Guardian of the Walls, like it's called in Israel, we kind of thought, here, we're going to look at the same kind of thing. It's going to be the same old, they're shooting rockets at us, we're shooting back after a couple of days' ceasefire, we know how this plays out. But the volume that I think really surprised us, besides the 4,000 rockets that were sent uh, to Israel, was the volume of what we heard happening outside of Israel, uh, and that sort of spilling over of... Anti-Israel into uh, these really, really terrible anti-Semitic
2: incidents, not only in Europe but also in in the U.S. Yeah, and you see it here in New York City and some of our major cities. I mean, where there was just a protest, and it was—I mean, we can laugh about it, and it, my husband and I did laugh about it, but it's actually sad as well. There was a protest right outside of our building um, in Manhattan. We walked outside and my son turned to me and said, Is this because of your interview? And, you know, we laughed, but it was also one of these you're, you're reminded of, of what must be going through the minds of children around the world, not only children in, in Israel and, and, you know, in Gaza and Palestinians, but um, Jews here as well. And it, then people saying, well, this is not about a religion. This is about a government, you know, and everyone has a right to criticize a government. And you're, you're, you know, people are being too defensive if they automatically are assuming and tying religion to the government. I, I think more people need to follow you and um, some of the, the media in and the journalists in Israel because they are among the harshest critics of the government and Netanyahu. And um, you don't have to be you know, thousands of miles away to be critical of that government. And that is fair game. It's what we do here in the U. It's what we do as journalists, right? It, or it doesn't matter where that government is, if it's our own or our abroad. But I think when you see the rise in violence and anti-Semitism, especially when it's coming in the backdrop of other movements that we've seen in in justice and social justice, particularly in America, but around the world following George Floyd, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's Asian Americans, I mean, everything is sort of percolating and we're seeing more of it. And and what I'm hearing just from the Jewish community and, you know, CNN just posted a story as well about this is that there is some concern that um, while there's, so much support for everyone going through this that that maybe some in the jewish community don't feel they have quite as much support um from from other activists that have been rallying around other causes
1: we, we've talked about that actually a bit on on the podcast but the here in britain it was estimated that in the 11 days of that conflict there was a sixfold increase in uh Anti-Semitic incidents, and it's I think in the United States there was a spike in anti-Jewish hatred online, increasing eighty percent during the um, during those days of conflict, and, and Jewish leaders met um, Joe Biden on Monday and Doug Emhoff, the second gentleman, um, uh, Kamala Harris's husband, meetings about that. So all this has been going on. I mean, she's probably not going to mention it herself, but Yonit also had a big interview this week um, with the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, who was in Israel. And well, I mean, Yoni, you can tell us about the whole interview, but you did ask him about anti-Semitism.
0: You spoke in your acceptance speech, you spoke about your uh, um, stepfather, uh, Samuel, being a Holocaust survivor. Mm. I think that resonated with many Israelis. And I wanted to ask you, when we see this rise in anti-Semitic incidents in mm. the US, could you tell us what that... You know what that makes you feel—not only on the national level mm-hmm. as a Secretary of State, but but on a personal level.
3: It's profoundly, profoundly uh, disturbing, and we have seen—not uh, just in the last uh, week, although we've seen a w- the last week we have seen a, a, a very disturbing eruption of uh, of anti-Semitic incidents. But the, the truth of the matter is, anti-Semitism has been on the rise in the United States uh, and around the world for the last several years, mm-hmm. and we know this from history. Um, it's 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 the canary in a coal mine. Mm-hmm. Because it's almost inevitable that uh, when you see anti-Semitism uh, erupt and emerge, uh, hatred directed at other groups almost is sure to follow, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we're seeing that in the United States now uh, with uh, um, hatred directed, for example, at Asian Americans. When I see that, I feel it both on a very personal level, but I also see it as a warning sign, mm-hmm. a signal that there things are happening that we have to that we have to address because. Mm-hmm. If it's allowed to fester, you wind up having a conflagration that, uh, uh, that affects a lot, a, a lot of people.
1: It is quite striking hearing Antony Blinken talking like that about anti-Semitism. I mean, one thing that slightly comes out at me is the idea that, as if perhaps he worries that the audience won't necessarily think it's a bad thing in itself, it's bad because it could lead to attacks on other minorities. And I just wondered what you thought about that.
2: Well, look, it's something that we that that has been in, in you know our world and and among Jews for you know millennia, right? And um, I think that perhaps that is what he was alluding to—that anti-Semitism isn't something new. Just like you know, being racist isn't something that's just popped up over the last four years. Uh, but here in the United States, there's a bit of whiplash, and I think the um, Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the ADL, uh, phrased it well uh, recently when he said, you know. We were seeing it four years ago, maybe from the right-wing extremists, and you would go to many rallies, Charlottesville, what have you. The Jews will not replace us, and, and many of these were Trump supporters, and they were wearing MAGA hats. And you go to the you know present-day uh, statistics and, and what we're seeing play out and transpire, and it, it's many of it is more progressives, people from from the left, and, and what he said is you don't see the MAGA hats. Uh, and then you have sort of the middle with elected officials like Marjorie Taylor Greene in the United States and and comparing, you know, having to have vaccine identification cards with, you know, the Holocaust and, and Jews wearing yellow stars. And I think what what Tony Blinken is trying to say is that while this may not be new, it is something we should always be vigilant against and be aware of because. Clearly, it's not limited to just Jews. And by the way, if it had in my, you know, my view is if it's even if it's just limited to Jews, that's not acceptable either.
0: In the midst of all this, it it feels like there's a kind of growing rift between large parts of the Jewish community in the United States, but also between that community and what's happening in Israel. Uh, That rift kind of grew larger with with the Trump years, obviously, where a lot of Israelis were very supportive of Trump. And the picture of liberal Jews in the United States was, of course, completely different. Does this situation change that
2: in any way? Does it extend this rift? Does, does it make it bigger? It's interesting. I've been covering many of your, uh, the Israeli um, media as well, and, and the coverage there seems to suggest that there needs to be more of a separation between, you know, and identifying that, that Jews in Israel are going through a different experience than Jews in America. And I think Maddie Friedman explained it well in, in his piece is, is, you know, recently that, as much as the Jewish world and diaspora, in particular, Israeli Jews and, and American Jews would like to portray this, you know, we're very similar in, in our views and in our democracy. It's two different countries and um, two different dynamics. And we sometimes would conflate, I think, what we've seen here, sort of this progressive movement, this social justice movement, the equation of Black Lives Matter and the Women's March with, you know, the, the Palestinian suffering, all of that's come together and and i think it's important it's raised important issues but i think we've sort of deflected away from the, the the idea that these are two separate countries with two separate you know issues at hand that one does not seem to necessarily understand of the other you know talking and equating about the palestinian israeli conflict with the black lives matter here is not as simple as just that one line, you know, the same as you trying to understand why, yet again, we had a mass shooting in the United States yesterday. So I'd say that's sort of the difference that we've seen and some of the similarities from leadership on down um, relative to, you know, how this was covered in 2014. But I would say a constant for many Americans is the presence of Bibi Netanyahu, right? We've now, this is his, what, third consecutive U.S. president? Um, and uh, so he's become a constant, and he's a very polarizing figure, I don't have to tell you that.
1: Yeah, he feels like he's been a constant part of my life since I was in my (laughs) early 20s. He's been around the whole time. I'm just thinking, putting on your um, global affairs analyst hat, just the other aspect of Tony Blinken in in the region, and announcing this uh, consulate, uh, or reopening the consulate, uh, East Jerusalem, to speak to Uh, Palestinians there. And what you sort of read into that, to to me, it looked quite a significant thing. It was sort of undoing the Trump move, that Trump, in a way, had had a kind of one-state representation there by having a single embassy to speak to Israelis and Palestinians.
2: Yes. And and that's very much, I think, what the Joe Biden administration, you know, under President Obama, you know, in in the sort of pre-Trump era, um, back to those policies that had sort of been universal from you know, Republicans and Democrats uh, prior to Trump, um, and I think that speaks to a larger notion of just what a shock to the system the Trump administration was and the Trump presidency was. But as we know, these crises don't go away. They you know they, they simmer at least on the global stage a- until they boil over. There's a lot of anger. There's I mean, and that's maybe going back to this. What are you, naive? Did you just come from under a rock? But, you know, from from covering this from abroad, especially when this administration was not, this was not front and center for the Obama administration. I mean, for the Biden administration, he'd been very clear about that. For the U.S. and for much of the world, going back to this area, you see so much tension, so much anger, so much hurt, so much pain. We cover this every few years. You're covering this, you know, you'll need, um, you know, a daily basis, uh, life for you, you say sort of goes back to normal, but that's your normal, just like I, I think yeah. for the rest of the world, you look at America and say, "How many mass shootings have you had this year? How is that normal? But then we go back to our normal. Um, but problems have yet to be solved again, I hate to be so so gloomy, but
1: you're fitting right in. you're a classic unholy oh, guest oh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we begin all cheery and we end up dispiriting each other by the end. You, you, you know, you can come back whenever you like. But well done on your mention of the uh, week award. We hand it to you virtually, but with, 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 great, um, with great pleasure.
2: Well, thank you. I'm a big oh, fan, so a much big fan of the, the show and thank you for everything you're doing. It's a wonderful conversation every week. I look forward to it.
0: So uh, back to our shtetl, Jonathan, a little bit on Israeli politics this week.
1: Yeah, this is the bit where we go, enough of you talking about me, let me talk about me, um, as as is our habit. No, what's been going on in the shtetl? What's the gossip from the water pump?
0: Big, big news at the water pump. Um, so it's Thursday, we're recording this on Thursday, six days left on the clock for Lapide's mandate, and uh, for the option to form a lapide Bennett government. Now, why are we still talking about this option, Jonathan? Because it seemed like the uh, government, uh, that option uh, uh, was dead, right? I'll remind you, two weeks ago, three days into to the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. At 8 o'clock, our correspondent, Yair Shirki kind of bursts into the studio with his dramatic headline that Bennett is saying a change government, right, a government between Bennett and Lapid is not on the table. Uh, behind the scenes, I can tell you that he called Lapid at 7.15, a mere 45 minutes before that story leaked, and told him that. So we were working under the assumption that this option is dead. But a few things happened since. The war ended, obviously. Uh, Netanyahu offered Bennett the moon, including being first uh, in prime minister rotation, surprisingly uh, retracted and offered more like a bite-sized chunk of the moon. Uh, And as we speak today, there are two public indications of where we are, right? That the, the government, this kind of change government is still on the table, one from a politician who isn't saying anything, and one from a politician who broke her silence, Bennett himself has been MIA, this is a politician who's not saying anything, has been MIA ever since that headline broke. He did not in his own voice say unequivocally, this. I'm taking this off the table, which is very important, by the way. If you're changing the channels on any international channel, you'll see Bennett explaining the Israeli rationale, you know, uh, in this war uh, against Hamas, holding up the rockets, etc. But he's not speaking to Israeli media. And the person who is speaking yesterday broke her silence, Ayala Chakid, number two for Bennett. Um, basically was saying in front of the cameras many things, but she didn't say, this option is off the table.
1: And what about our friend, the dentist, uh, the (laughs) Islamist dentist, Mansour Abbas, the key kingmaker? Mm -hmm. I mean, our earlier conversations at the time was that it was impossible for him, in a way, for his constituents to now go in into, in a way, certainly a Netanyahu government, but a kind of Zionist government. That would be difficult for him. And equally... Would Israeli Jewish public opinion wear a government that was propped up by an Islamist party that has at least some kind of kinship with its Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, allies or friends, associates, um, in in Gaza? How does that still play?
0: He still wants this. Is his party behind him is a good question. But you should make, uh, you, when you look at the political arena right now, you should make a distinction. But Saler Smotrich who is Netanyahu's partner, is still saying there is no way that I will sit in a coalition with him, making that not an option. And the other side, the Bennett's, the the kids the Sals, etc., are not saying this. For them, it's still an option. Again, I don't know if what we're seeing now is renewed negotiations for that so-called change government or just a trailer for the fifth elections, right? And I can tell you the movie's not going to be great already. But we, we are seeing... The option's still on the table. We have six days. Uh, This can still happen.
1: I think taking just a step back from it, I suppose part of the reason is that this whole episode, the fact that it even happened, yet again goes to, in a way, the theory of the case that Bennett and Saar and others have been arguing, which is that Netanyahu is no longer the super competent leader, national leader, that they would have once said he was in the sense of allowing this thing to escalate and turn into a uh, shooting war in the first place, that some of the shine has come off Netanyahu as a guardian of the national interest in the sense that he allowed events in Jerusalem to run out of control, Mm -hmm. led Israel to be exposed to this fusillade of Hamas rockets more sophisticated than before, more of them getting through than before. And it's yet another mark against him in terms of his credentials in the eyes of the national camp. Well, it's
0: interesting. When you look at the polls that were done just after this uh, operation ended, you see that when they ask him, who do you think is, is best compa- compatible to be prime minister, Netanyahu got only 4% more than Lapid. Now, that's interesting. So it's after a war. He's the national leader. You would think he'd get a big bounce. He didn't because of some of the reasons that you were just stating.
1: We've uh, definitely learnt in this country that that polling number, the one that talks about leadership qualities, is always the one to watch, actually, Mm -hmm. more than your voting preference by party. And as you say, that lead is very small. Now, you talked about bracing ourselves for the fifth... General election. There are other elections imminent just days away. Indeed, in fact, we are not the. Your forget country.
0: vaccination. We're election nation. Look at us. You're
1: election nation. But this is a really sort of intimate affair because there are, it's an electorate of only 120 people to choose the next president of the country. Reuven Rivlin's term is in its final days. Well, there are two candidates. I'm going to just talk about one of them because uh, of something he said. About this very podcast. <laughs> and, if, and, and in fact, particularly about you. So I'm talking, of course, about Isaac Herzog, who is currently head of the Jewish agency, the, uh, which he likes to say is the largest Jewish organization in the world, formerly leader of the opposition, formerly leader of the Israeli Labour Party. He is one of the two candidates for the presidency. And just a matter of days ago he broke what i think is otherwise you'll tell me if i'm wrong a bit of a kind of public media silence no, he's not doing not many wrong. events not talking. but he did do one event and that was with uh, a, a, an organization in london which was marking the 50th anniversary we talked about it last week of the founding first edition of the you don't have to be jewish radio program which we told unholy listeners last week was presented by my late father, Michael Friedland. Uh, Isaac Herzog came on to this live panel event we did for JW3, Jew- Jewish Organization in London. He um the reason he came on was there is a rather lovely special connection, which is his uh late father, Chaim Herzog, former president, was a regular contributor. He was a kind of Jerusalem affairs analyst uh on You Don't Have to Be Jewish. And so we it was a very sweet thing. It was kind of two sons talking to each other about their two fathers who used to talk to each other. And uh, I, my first question to Isaac Herzog was what memories he had, but he strayed off script to say these rather lovely words <laughs> about us.
0: And now you, ha- you have a weekly podcast with one of Israel's greatest journalists, Yonit Levi. It's called Two Jews on the News. I highly recommend a uh, world over to
1: listen to it because it explains the new the no realities of uh, Jewish life around the world and and with Israel
0: That's uh that's lovely. That really is lovely. Uh, and we thank him for Praise
1: for, it. for you. We're Praise <laughs> for you. He didn't go say anything about me. He praised my dad <laughs> and he praised you.
0: That was such a Jewish thing to say, Jonathan. <laughs> um, he went on your Program for your father, Um, and uh, and yeah, but we're not taking sides in the presidential race. I mean, we invite uh, Miriam Peretz, who's contending, uh, uh, who's the contender for the presidency, to listen to Unholy as well. Uh, But you you mentioned uh, Jonathan. There are two candidates. Um, and I think we should sort of um, maybe explain the contours of this race. First of all, as you said, it's 120 members of Knesset who vote for the president. These, this is the constituency. This is the, these are the people you need to convince. Um, and uh, of course, uh, Itzhak Herzog, uh, codename. I mean, his nickname is Bougie, by the way. That's how Israelis refer to him. It's a mix of. Uh, His mother gave him this nickname, and it's a mix of the French and Israeli word for doll. So uh, Bougie is obviously, uh, uh, was the leader of the Labour Party, lives in this affluent neighborhood in northern Tel Aviv. You know, he's the... Ashkenazi aristocracy, if you will, the elite of old Israel. And on the other side, you have uh, Moroccan-born Miriam Peretz, raised herself up from nothing, not a politician in any way. She's an educator and someone who's become a household name in Israel after losing both her sons uh, during military service, different incidents a few years apart. And she became the symbol and this inspiration for many Israelis on how to uh, overcome uh, tragedy um, and we, you know, let's listen to a little bit of her talking about that experience in her life.
3: Though death has dealt me more than one fainful blow, I want you to know that I do not despair. In Morocco, I had to walk with my head always bent and fair. In Eretz Israel, I stand tall, proud and unafraid.
1: And so the, I'm interested in Miriam Peretz because she doesn't have an international profile in the way that Bougie Herzog does. I mean, he is the. John Quincy Adams uh, for uh, for Israel, you know, the yep. son of an mm-hmm. earlier president who seeks the same office. And that goes right to the narrative you explained. But she's a... Miriam Peretz is, to me anyway, a bit of an unknown quantity. I, I hear what you say about her personal experience and personal tragedy. What do we know about her politics? Is she the candidate... Of the of of the of you know the Likud world in the way that Herzog must be the candidate of the Labour. Yeah, that's world.
0: that's a really interesting question. First of all, the Likud is not officially endorsed. Miriam Peretz. It's definite that her worldview is closer uh, to to the Likud, but uh, he they haven't endorsed her. First of all, there's a question why the Likud did not bring forth their own politician. The answer to that is, of course, that Netanyahu wanted to use that as his plan B if he uh, could not get elected again as as prime minister. He would sort of, eject. this is, I guess, strange to anyone who doesn't understand the Israeli system, but his plan B was to get elected as president, thus being immune from uh, uh, persecution, from from being indicted and from his trial to continue. But in any case... Did
1: you say persecution or prosecution?
0: Oh dear, I said that.
1: Because prosecution definitely. I I said persecution.
0: I said persecution. I'll say that again. In which
1: case, Bibi is going to do a message about unholy for us now because he's going to love that. He's going to get record a little endorsement where if we go around (laughs) talking about him being persecuted by his enemies. Come on, Bibi, you know the address. Two Jews on the news at Instagram. Send us send us a little audio file, and uh, and we'll put you alongside the two. He might actually do
0: that, Jonathan. So, uh, prosecution and from being indicted, uh, and, uh, it, so, so that was his, uh, sort of line of, of considering that's not going to happen. The other question you would be asking if you were not busy, uh, waiting for Bibi to send us his endorsement, uh, would be why is he not putting his weight behind Miriam Peretz? Uh, and- He's not doing that thus far. The elections are on Wednesday. He's not doing it thus far because he doesn't want to lose. And he still thinks that Bougie is the front runner. So he's not doing that. But again, Miriam Peretz is incredibly popular inside Israel. Um, She's running this campaign that says, I'm not a politician, right? Which I don't know, it works. Does it work for people who are politicians who need to vote for you? Uh, But that is is, uh, her line now. We have to say, this is, of course, more a ceremonial role than anything else. Uh, In Israel, it has two important decisions that a president needs to make, who to give the mandate to while forming a government. There's a little bit of wiggle room on that, but it's arguable. And of course, the option of giving a presidential pardon. Now that is an issue that is a heated debate here in Israel. Is there a president who would give Netanyahu himself a pardon, uh, by the way, before his verdict uh, uh, is given? Um, and so so that is a question for both. They're, of course, being very evasive about this at this point. They want to be elected. But it's a question if that is even a possibility after one of them gets elected.
1: It's, a, it's such a fascinating contest because if it was a national election, direct election for the presidency, you would actually put some money on Miriam Peretz because the anti-elite message is time for a woman president, her personal backstory, the anti-politics message. But since the electorate, as you say, is other politicians... Um, Bushi seems to have played this really well. And I think it's fascinating, of course, that it is a secret ballot. And so you could have all kinds of people who maybe have – who just personally like uh, Herzog. And apparently he's done very well cultivating the the, the different – people he needs. But, you know, some prejudices may kick in. There are, for example, some uh, legislators in the Knesset who may not be mad about having a woman president. You know, we assume that's a good and obvious thing, but there are ultra-Orthodox, ultra-conservative parties who may not want a woman uh, as head of state. And similarly, who knows, uh, she is a Mizrahi candidate. She's, as you said, from Morocco. Maybe there are still some old prejudices there that say if an Ashkenazi man is on the ballot. And if it's in secret, let's go with the Ashkenazi man. Now, we have some awards to hand out. I think we've already given one of them to Bianna very deservingly. She is our Mensch of the Week. But Chutzpah of the Week uh, nomination, I think, Yoni, you've got someone in mind.
0: I do, I do. A story takes uh, the cake for the Bazaar of the Week, the Eurovision drugs scandal for any of us living outside Europe and Australia, because apparently they're on the Eurovision now. I don't know how that happened. Uh, The lead singer of the Italian glam rock band that won the Eurovision song was seen, how shall we say it, um, with his nose very close to the table when the camera was focused on him uh, in the green room. Uh, so organizers uh, took a drug test, said that he actually was just bent over, I think that he said he was just bent over to pick a broken glass, which was indeed found. I think the fact that we're talking about a drug scandal, not about rockets, is already a reason to make uh, our week look better. I'm, I, I'm somehow reminded of a documentary in which... Uh, Behind the scenes in a Rolling Stones concert, uh, there's a, a waiter actually going around with pills on a platter, and uh, they ask Mick Jagger what it is, and he says vitamins. So maybe it was <laughs> just vitamins. Vitamins, I think it's
1: say. very funny, this, because Eurovision, whatever else you may say about it, doesn't exactly have sort of rock, rock and roll credentials. You noticed that, you know? huh? <laughs> and, and the singer came on and said, you know, rock and roll will never die. And I thought, hilarious, you're at the Eurovision Song <laughs> Contest, which is a very distant relative of rock and roll. It's very, you know, it's high camp and glamour. But it isn't rock and roll. Um, Britain, of course, managed to come bottom of the pole, I think for the second time running, with Null Point. <laughs> um a big fat f s on the scoreboard um for the u k but britain has has won in the past, but not for a very long time. People here are imagining it's a brexit thing. no, my favorite little twist on this allegation that the Italian uh, rock frontman was doing lines on the table was that an art historian tweeted out this video saying she was going to deploy all her history of art knowledge. To examine the video and look at the planes and the visual lines and she worked out that there was no way that could have been his face and his nose couldn't have been at the level of the table I think we must put a link to it in the show notes because it's just my favorite bit <laughs> I'm just this, wondering uh, I have just
0: one question and I just need you to honest honest answer uh, how long I mean did you watch the whole thing
1: I didn't watch any
0: of the songs no, but I did watch the
1: voting I did watch the voting because, for me, the voting is the show and the politics of voting. I just love that and always have done. You know, you know what know, Israelis Greece do when, gives, when they watch the Eurovision, right? Yeah, it's Greece gives 12 to Cyprus, Cyprus gives 12 to no, Greece, but and Israel no is... one gives Britain anything.
0: Israelis <laughs> <laughs> just so sit around is... saying, OK, these guys are anti-Semites, they give us no points. These guys are anti-Semites, they give us no points. You know,
1: that, It's like the national yeah, and we have another. And we have another round of that always uh, with the World Cup is another one of that with all the different matchups and whose war record is worse than the other. This is a very bad and unhealthy attitude, I (laughs) hasten to add. It should have died out two generations ago, but maybe it lives on a little bit. Um, We should tell people, uh, Miriam Peretz and others, that if you want to recommend us to your friends, you really must do so. Do subscribe, that is good. Do give us five star reviews, that is also good. And mention us to anybody who you think would enjoy the show.
0: Indeed. And let us say thank you to our executive producer, Leo Friedman, to Rom Attic, head of podcast, Omer Primat, and uh, Jonathan. Don't break any glasses under the table this week until the next we meet.
1: <laughs> See you on Eat. Bye.